collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system. And each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Collective Power. My guest this morning is Police Commissioner Luis Molina. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm currently the first Deputy Commissioner of the Westchester County Department of Corrections. Just as a disclaimer, though, I'm here, you know, on my own accord. I'm not here representing the Westchester County government or my department, but just my professional and personal experiences in our criminal justice system, primarily in law enforcement. And just for clarity, we're talking about Westchester, New York, right? Because yes. there's also Westchester and PA and we're in PA. Okay, great. Thank you. And uh, we're definitely, we really appreciate you being here today, even with that context, right? Of you representing sure. your personal opinions and not the uh, opinions of the department. Tell us a little bit. So, first of all, for those of us who can't remember your title, right? Sure. Like, what does a commissioner or deputy commissioner in a Department of Corrections actually do? So, I think um, in corrections or in law enforcement in general, right, commissioners that lead an agency have the overall responsibility of not only the leadership of the agency, but operationally, the operational responsibility of the agency as well. But more importantly, I think commissioners that lead these agencies really define the ethos and the culture of the agency, right? And they define that either by their actions or their inaction on a number of issues. So you play a really important part in the culture of the department that you supervise. Absolutely. And for me, from my perspective, the culture of these departments the majority of it is defined by the leadership of the agency. Cool. So culture and accountability, like you're the person accountable yes. for culture and accountability. That's cool. Yes. So in these days, there are a lot of people who are uh, calling for accountability. And while you are a commissioner on the um, correction side, not on the police side, mm -hmm. right? The way our systems work is that there's a police commissioner right on the police side of the work and those sure. those kind of well hierarchy is how we generally call it but hierarchy mm -hmm. systems of accountability right are mirrored between corrections and police right which is why one of the reasons like I invited you here today mm -hmm. well you know I just so that the audience can get an understanding of my experiences 
I've been working in law enforcement for over 20 years, and I have served in the, what I would call the three main pillars of our criminal justice system. So I've worked in policing. I'm a retired police officer. I've worked in the district attorney's office, which is a different sort of segment of our criminal justice system. And I also have worked in corrections in two local jurisdictions. Great. You have an experience from like on the ground and, and then in a commissioner role in on both sides. Wonderful. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about like you. What are you like as a human being? Like what that has you be in what you are in the position you are. And if you can tell us sort of like a story so that we get a feel both for who you are as a human being. Sure. And what has you do this kind of work? Got it. So, you know, I'm passionate about doing everything I can to reform and in some cases really redefine the role of our criminal justice and our social services systems and what they're really doing to support persons that need some level of government intervention, either to enhance their own individual or public safety. But that's a, a responsibility, not only for the people that we serve in the public, but also the people that work for us when we're leaders in these positions, right? I have been very fortunate, have been given a lot of opportunities. I was lucky uh, to have people support me along my journey. Many young people don't have that, right? So for me, I'm defined by a professional and really personal calling to restructure our criminal justice and social service systems so that they really uplift humanity and not serve as tools to persistently disadvantage poor communities or communities of color. So when I entered um, a career in law enforcement in general, I really went in with an idealism, which I think the majority of most public servants have a real idealistic approach and how they feel their role is going to be in serving um, their communities. So could you give me a personal story that has me understand why that's important to you? You know, it's important to me. I grew up in um, I, my best friend, Steve, his father was a sergeant in the NYPD, and that was he played a really big role part of my life growing up. I spent half my childhood in his home as I did in my own. I was fortunate to have a mom and dad in my life, like I said earlier, many kids don't have that. But going out every day, seeing how he served not only our community and his role as a member of the police department, but he was also another Latino like me, right? So there weren't many Latinos for me growing up that were in positions of authority. I'm sure some existed, but none were sort of in my life or none that were readily accessible or observable to me. So for me, that's been an important thing for me able to, with my fortunate you know, opportunities and, and gifts that I've been given by the people that have supported me and others, that was my way of giving back, right? To be able to enter public service and really take an active role in helping communities tackle a number of issues. I want to dig a little bit deeper in your personal story. Like, was like kind of going on in your life and at the moment in time in which you decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Sure. So when I reflect and think about sort of my journey, I wanted to be in public service. Coming out of high school, I wanted to go to college. I didn't come from a family that had had my immediate members of my family attend college. I felt that I had a very fortunate childhood, but we didn't have the money for me to even go to college, right? So my parents really couldn't really help me with that. 
my father had been in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. So for myself, my first step in public service was to join the Marine Corps active duty to get the GI Bill in an effort to be able to have some money to go to college at some point in my life. Um, after I finished active duty and I, and I went to graduate, um, wanted to go into public service and really based on my experience from Steve's dad um, and others, that the public service department that I think could have the biggest impact on the day-to-day -day lives of our community was policing. So I applied to um, the three major police departments in, in the US, LAPD, Chicago, New York. I was very fortunate to get hired by NYPD at that time and um, you know, pursued, began my career in public service. So for me, public service and giving back to the community, being able to have that role um, was really a calling for me. So given that background and your personal experience, how do you make meaning of kind of George Floyd and now Rashad Brooks' death? Sure. You know, for, for me, the first thing I would say is I can appreciate all of the police chiefs, police commissioners, leaders of different criminal justice systems coming out and calling for reform, right? My question to them was, what has taken you so long, right? Our communities have been going through this for two generations, right? So, you know, when I look at, when I think about the murder of George Floyd, it is something that could have been preventable. Preventable if the leaders that lead these agencies would have had the will to do what they needed to do to make sure that they have agencies that really understand their role in really helping the community move forward. You know, now we're in a moment where there's, there seems to be at least a lot of optimism that we're going to get reform and we're, start, we're going to start to be redefining the roles that we want our police departments and our criminal justice system to play in our communities. And that's been brought about by this sort of collective, really sustainable sort of movement that's going on right now in excess of three weeks. So it appears to me that Mr. Floyd really was the tipping point for getting those in power to recognize that they need to redefine and reform these systems that has disenfranchised poor communities and communities of color for a long time. So what do you see has to happen from here on? Well, there's a number of things, right? So I, I think we currently do have systems and institutions that can hold, you know, we're talking about law enforcement specifically, accountable. Right, but we need those robust systems to work, right? Whether that's the internal affairs and disciplinary mechanisms within the police department itself, whether it's we're talking about the district attorney at the local level or the US attorneys at the federal level. So those institutions now, I think have been held back because of the majority of the people that have led them have really not have had the will to really use the full powers and the capacities of their office to do so. I also think we need to recognize that we need diverse representation within those that lead these institutions, right? Government agencies need to, throughout the agency, really mirror the communities that they're supposed to serve, right? And we don't really have that. And in cases where we do have it, persons of color or you know proper gender representation, many times those individuals serving capacities within the agencies that really don't affect operationally on the ground how the rank and file 
in this case, let's say police officers, interact with the public. Say that last thing again. I think I missed something. So, you know, in the cases where we do have minority representation within the senior levels of these agencies, specifically law enforcement agencies, many times what you'll see is that person overseeing a unit within the agency that doesn't really impact the operations of the agency. And the operations of the agency is the most critical part because they're the ones that are interacting with the public every day. And like it or not, especially in policing, policing is the face of government, right? It's who the public has the most interactions with on a day-to-day basis. Could you give an example to break that down? Because I don't think I'm following you, actually. So, for example, you might have a person of color, let's say, that's in charge of some administrative aspect within a police department, which is important, right? Because we need to administratively run the department. You know, on a daily basis, people need to get paid. People have other different challenges that they have to address. But you won't have a person of color, let's say, that's the deputy commissioner of, let's say, operations, right? Or you won't have a person of color or minority representation at the top tier, at the commissioner level, right? The administrative state seats commissioners of all these agencies with significant power and significant discretion to manage the agencies how they see appropriate. But when that group of individuals that lead these agencies really only represents one community or our country, in this case, it's the Caucasian community, then our lived experiences don't go into the equation and the decision tree process for how they operate that agency. Anything from enforcement strategies that affect poor communities and communities of color when you have over-enforcement, to even a disciplinary process that has disparities Caucasian officers getting more favorable discipline outcomes than minority officers. And we've seen that a lot here, and even in New York City, not long ago under the Giuliani administration. So are you saying that there's one tier of leadership that where you'll find some people of color and then the, the people who supervise them or oversee them are generally all white? Are you saying that, or are you saying it varies oh, yes. and then that's it. That's, Well, that's, that's what it. I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, that's what Got I'm it. saying, right? So. Okay. The commissioners, the, so the top people who the heads admin of these department, the com- mm-hmm. you know, are the ones that are really defining what the culture and the ethos of that agency is. Yeah. Well, and that's really how the like the status quo preserves itself, right? So it's like, you know, I mean, black folks have been talking about this forever mm. that you make sure. the visible leadership a little mm. like you sprinkle some color in the visible le- leadership. Sure. But then the actual the people who actually call the shots still are Absolutely. all white and still don't have insights on what it's like on the ground. And so then they get to call the shots and there is all a power play. So people, you know, like you, people like mm-hmm. Damon who we connected with last week, sure. right? Are folks who get into the system thinking they can change it. And then the more they get promoted, the more they bump against rules, practices, laws, regulations, right? And people who hold back the change. Oh, yeah. And also, I think what happens sort of because there's little representation, right? And I think as communities, whether whatever connects us to our community, sometimes that's, that's from an ethnic perspective. Sometimes it's from a religious perspective. You're very lonely in these positions, right? So sometimes when they advance a person of color into a position, right, 
that really hasn't been part of the fight. They've lived a life, you know, they've had a career. To some degree, they've had a very, very successful career. But at least publicly and observationally, they haven't really been in the fight for equality and proper representation. What you happen is, for myself, for example, I feel that I've been very qualified to hold the positions that I've held in my professional life. But I recognize that this is not a complete meritocracy, right? So if it wasn't for the voice of advocates and community leaders that demand proper representation within these ranks, I may have never gotten the opportunity to be considered for a position and really attain a position. But what happens is when someone feels, when a person like my, from the minority community gets one of these positions, but they actually feel they got there all on their merit and they're qualified to do it, they're disconnected for what was the on-ramp that got them that opportunity, right? So they feel like, well, I've made it on my own. I've struggled. And they discount, I think, has been my experience, the work and the sacrifice made by advocates, persons of color within the system that have had the courage to speak out, that really got them that opportunity, right? So we need leaders, not only that mirror our communities, but that really understand sort of the systemic bias that exists and has a willingness to do something about it to effectuate real change. And so on the community side, what there is for us to do is to advocate that the people that are placed in those positions or that we elect, right, where we can, are people who are connected to the struggle and connected to the community and not just the face. Because the face face perpetuates it, right, is what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the person who just wants to keep a job, hold it up. Sure. And I think that that can be advanced in a number of ways. I mean, we need more of our voting public to actually vote. We need proper representation on transition teams and teams that decide who are the individuals that are going to help an elected official sort of lead his cabinet. We need voices. Voices are important. But we also need to make sure that those voices and those relationships actually advance action, right, to where you're getting real equity in the system by appointing the right people to lead them. So what is the action? So I hear the action around having representation by folks of color who are connected to the community struggle and Mm -hmm. connected to the history, quite honestly, right? Because the community struggle didn't start two weeks ago. Absolutely. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Like this is like centuries of advocacy work and centuries of a stand for equality, a stand for a better world, a stand for equity. So... What other actions do you see we need to take on to leverage our our collective power to shift this? Sure, sure. So I think, you know, we're seeing that right now, right? I mean, there's been a global outcry for reform that was sparked from Mr. Floyd's murder. It has been really sustainable. And, and I think that that's the key, right? The sustainability of not only the outrage that is forcing a lot of legislative remedies, or even the prosecutorial courage to hold law enforcement officers that either through their poor decisions recklessly or intentionally cause the serious physical harm or the death of a member of the public. So we're seeing that now. But what we need to make sure is that we sustain holding people accountable, right? I mean, it's great to have meetings and it's great to say I have access and I can discuss these things with our elected leaders. But if they don't move the ball forward, right, to really touch on the important core issues that really help revolve 
and reform the sort of outcomes that you're having, then, you know, declaring June 19th today a holiday is a wonderful, long overdue recognition of what that date means, especially for African-Americans in this country that have dealt with the history of slavery. But it's not enough if we're not going to have the people that lead the agencies that are so connected to our communities really understand how do they manage and impact these communities in a way that help uplift them so that they can be successful either as individuals or as a community. I love what you're saying. And I think part of what I'm learning in this conversation is that one of the roles that you play as a person of color mm-hmm. who is connected to the struggle and sure. is connected to what community needs is a translation. Right? Sure. Like, and so, and I think about how Damon last week literally mapped out for us how legislation sure. needs to change at the mm-hmm. different levels, right? So sure. if it were for you, right? If an activist knocks on your door and says, hey, given what you know about what happens on the inside, what should we be advocating on the outside at each level, right? So local, state, federal, what would you say? Yeah, so I actually do think that we have systems and government bodies that can hold us accountable, right? We have oversight bodies that can do that. We just don't have the leaders of those agencies that have the will to use the power of their office, right? So from a perspective of, getting people registered and mobilizing people to vote so that those that are at least elected into these positions, whether that's on the city council, at the mayoral level, at the district attorney's level, mobilizing those constituencies to come out to say, listen, you're going to have a one-term career if you don't use the capacities within your office to do things that have to hold us accountable. The other thing is I think for me, having been in the struggle within the system, Many times when we've reached out to advocates, either as a group of minority officers or as individual officers, a lot of times because we're in the role that we're in, despite us being in large agreement with a lot of the reform that the activists want, those advocacy groups and those activists shun us, right? They won't partner with us to sort of help right-size or just on a macro level of how you reform the agency. So for me, I would tell activists, You have to sit down with those of us that are within the system to not only get an understanding of how the system actually operates and how policies and procedures actually are designed to achieve the outcomes that we see today. They're not mistakes, right? They're designed to effectuate these outcomes. And together, we could join forces to really hold departments accountable. But a lot of sort of law enforcement sort of activists within the system are not only sort of retaliated by the departments, right, if, depending on our positions within them, but we're also shunned by the activist group. So there needs to be more, I think, collaboration between both of these sort of groups. And there would be a really collective power that could really bring about some real change. So partner, basically partner, take time to build relationships and partner with people inside the system who have been trying to change it forever. Like you have insights. And I'm assuming there are also insights you have that, you know, you wouldn't say on a radio show. Sure. (laughs) Right. Sure. Um, Well, the the systems are not going to change unless the people within them that understand what changes need to take place are going to happen. All of the other stuff is superficial. I mean, think of all of the laws that we have passed and regulatory authority we have passed on on MWBE to EEOs, right? 
I, I don't None know what the, what are those so minority um, women owned businesses okay. have them gain an advantage with the sort of the private business world. When we're talking about equal opportunity laws and regulations, none of that has really lessened the amount of sort of disenfranchisement that people of color have experienced in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So, you know, laws and all that is important. And I think we have enough laws to address those issues. What we need is um, the will of leadership to really do their job. So you talked about electing new leadership. How do we put pressure on the leadership that's already there? Like, who do we put pressure on and how do we put pressure on them? Yeah, so I think um, pressure is being brought about. You're seeing a lot of elected officials from local city council member representatives to various city halls throughout the country take action, whether it's from removing police from schools, which I don't think they should have been there in the first place, rethinking what role police departments play in addressing social service issues. So that's happening now because of the long-term sustainable sort of outrage and protests that have been going on throughout the globe, right? So that's something we're doing. And I think being engaged with these elected leaders on an increased level will get them to respond to the needs of the community, right? Because they believe literally measure the number of times constituency calls about a number of issues. Wonderful. So I'm just curious, what do you think is next in this conversation? For me, I mean, it's still early. I think we have a long way to go. I think this is not going to get solved over the next few months. I don't think it's going to get solved that we discussed, you know, by the sprinkling of just a handful of people that sort of mirror the community. I think what's next is to see we're in a moment of a huge election cycle, right? Which is this, like all of the stars are aligning at the right time. And I think seeing how we move forward as a nation, right? You know, depending on how the presidency and the powers of the legislature sort of not only locally, but at the federal level, what that sort of look like and what sort of legislation comes out of that. In addition to legislation, what sort of action and proactive actions you using the current laws that exist is really going to define how we move forward, right? I think we can all get excited if um, after this electoral period, we get the type of leaders that we deserve in this country leading it. But um, that's not going to be the only thing, right? I think the work now becomes harder then because now we have to say, how do we actually achieve the outcomes that we want using our current structure? And what are there other things that we need to do and change and actually effectuate the outcomes that we want? Thank you for being with us, Louis. And let us know how people can get in touch with you. We're actually going to do something a little different today and sure. have us a, a different guest for the second half of okay. the show. Uh, we have Carla Cruel coming in, attorney and uh, activist who's run for office before. And then we're going to have you back next week to kind of talk okay. together and have a conversation that's more interactive. So sure. do you have a way that people can get in touch with you or any last thoughts? Sure. I have a personal website, um, lewismolina.com, and you know people can send me messages through that. And I'm happy to speak with anyone on these issues, even those that, that don't agree with me, right? I think it's important that we have dialogue and we sort of listen to each other to try to get an understanding of, in the perspective of people's different lived experiences 
as they intersect within the criminal justice system, social services systems, and just in communities in general. I want to thank you for having me on. I want the audience to know that these conversations are important. And when you have people that look like me in these positions, it's important that we come out and speak and talk about what our ideologies are and overall philosophies are on these very important issues related to criminal justice. So thank you for the time. Thank you, Lewis. And I'm looking forward to our um, show next week where you and Damon from last week and Carla will be able to come together and toggle out how you're connecting to the defund police movement and what's next. Sure. So thank, uh, you. thank you again for your time today. Have a good day. And good morning, Carla. Let me hear your voice. Let me check that I can hear you. Yes. Oh, great. This is the first time that I do this, like a little bit of a shuffle, and this was seamless. Thank you. And it's good to see your face this morning. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. So my first question is my standard first question, which is, could you tell us, right, a story about yourself? So I know that you're an attorney and an activist and you support activists to kind of lay out their strategic legislative agendas, right? Because that's really what you know best. I just love, could you tell us a story that has us understand like what drew you to the work that you do now? I think my answer to that is that I've always done this since I was a little kid from elementary school, yelling at my teacher for treating the boys in the class differently than the girls and that was fifth grade that I had to be carried out of the class for that and <laughs> in middle school I got in trouble I was impeached actually as the president what? <laughs> because what I, yeah I, I okay I, that's the story I want to hear <laughs> right there right there I mean I want to hear the the first one too but that that sounds <laughs> juicy let's hear so um what I happened was the president of my seventh grade class and uh, my teacher, who is phenomenal, and I've become friends with her since, she used to have this rule. She was training us, right? Now mm -hmm. I'm a grown-up. I understand what she was doing. But she would call all of her females ladies in training. And, you know, her classroom, like, she would say, this is a dictatorship, not a democracy. I'm in the class, right? Wonderful teacher, great math teacher, but that's how. So one day, you know, people are traveling around and they would go from class to class because I was in an academics plus program. And so it's all of these black children who are smart and gifted, et cetera, et cetera. So they would bring people to look at us all the time. Right. So she asked for all of her lips to stand up. I didn't stand up. So she's looking at me and I said, I don't perform on command and I don't think any of the, my other classmates should be forced to perform on command. Like, Woo! How old were you? <laughs> no, we're not in this. How old were you world. again? I was 12, 12 years old. <laughs> wow. So they said that I did not represent <laughs> what they wanted to be the leadership of the class. So I was impeached. But throughout my life, I've had this, uh, I think that, I, I think I was naturally a believer in in the hands of the people. But at the same time, 13 years old, I read 1984 by George Orwell. And I saw the parallels between the world that we were living in, even though everyone says that was supposed to be about Russia. I was like, this is what I know as a Black person, right? Um mm. 
And because I questioned everything that like, you know, even my essays to college, I wrote an essay to um, get a scholarship and I was going to go into law enforcement and they were asking me why. And I said, because, you know, I see people in my neighborhood. Now, mind you, again, 17 years old at this point. See, all of these people in my neighborhood going to jail on a regular basis, and they're going to jail for drugs, and they're going to jail for guns, but we don't bring this stuff into this country. We don't manufacture guns, so why is my community suffering under this oppression of constantly being policed and pushed? So my thought, because I was a child, I thought, oh, I'll go into federal law enforcement. I'll keep it from coming into the country. And then that'll keep it from trickling down to my community. Then I grew up <laughs> and learned that that's not how mm. it works. So everything I've done throughout my life, I've had a philosophy of don't do it for money if you wouldn't do it for free. And if it's not going to have lasting transformative change, either to you personally or to the collective whole, what's the point? Don't do it for money if you wouldn't do it for free. That has guided my life since I first had my first job. Where do we stand around the whole defund police thing? Like, let's flesh that out. We're going to talk more next week. Like, I'm going to have you guys really interface and we're going to have a, like, juicy conversation about it. But I want to hear more about, like, what your stand is. And I'm going to ask you two questions at once, actually. What is your stand And how does that connect to your understanding of our systems? Okay, sure. So first I want to say that we, I have to say, I love defining words uh, because people don't always mean the same thing. So we use this word activist and my personal definition of activist is activating the power of the greater mass, right? So I think that a true activist should be actually activating the power of the critical mass, the collective community, in a true activist, it will never be about them. So putting that aside, what I think about the defund police is one, I feel like they shouldn't have named it that. Um, I think that is a bad name because, you know, branding is everything. Some people say they want to defund police because, and when they say defund police, some people mean that they want there to be zero police force because they think of it as being this regiment against the people, and it's an oppressive force to control the people. Some people define defund as reallocation, right? So take this excessive money that we have been using towards the police, and this is what the large majority is grabbing onto and what people consider to be the first step. I value more of that perspective, the the reallocation, and I'll tell you why. Again, taking this idea that you're activating the power that's already in people and their perspective. What some people don't know is like some of the the best, if you're a prosecutor, one of the best jurors, a black city, like what a city like Philadelphia, where the majority of people are black is actually older black women, right? They're much more likely to convict somebody of being guilty because they want to live safe. They want to be protected, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So they're also the same people. You said that as a matter of fact, like that is not common knowledge. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. And, it's and it common also, amongst it's, lawyers. It's uh, common knowledge amongst interesting. lawyers. Interesting. Okay. This is why, like, in systems conversations, you have to have people who have different insights into the system because everybody knows something different right. about how it works. 
Right. So okay. we went like a, so a middle class older, white woman. Middle class, black. older. You said black women, though. Older black women. Older, older black, black women are more likely to convict. Yes. Interesting. So you, okay. you would think they would say, oh, those are my sons. But what they don't want is if someone has presented that this is a thief and a murderer, they also think, I don't want that person in my community around my grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So there are these clumps of people. So if you ask a lot of our seniors, and remember, many of our seniors are from the baby boomer generation, which means there's a lot of them. You go to seniors and start asking them, do you want to get rid of police altogether? And they were like, oh, no, you know what I'm saying? Who do do I call, right? Right. So if we're going to live in a democracy and people are going to have a voice, those baby boomers, those seniors are going to need to have a voice. So in the defund police movement, one of the things that I've been trying to explain to people is if you understand, and this answers your second question, along with the defund, I'm mixing them together. If you understand the purpose of systems, if you understand why you have a legal system at all, you think of it as we live in a society, you understand that in a society, there is going to be conflict because every human being doesn't have the same point of view and value system. And in a country like America, where we have this eclectic background of cultures, you're going to have a greater amount of conflict, right? So the purpose of law is to help formulate one, the idea of what the value system is, and then how are we going to address them when conflict arises, right? And so then you always have to have some level of enforcement. If you think of a normative distribution curve, the idea is that there's always going to be some people who are anti, right? And they're going to break the rules. They always exist. So because of that, you need to have some type of enforcement. Now, that being said, how our system is structured now with what the police, uh, their their role in the community has to change, right? Mm -hmm. And so the way that I've been supporting people in the defund movement is sort of explaining this with people who are activists and explaining them that their quest through the legislative agenda, this has to be a first step, but it can't be the last step. Right. Because the system is actually just trying to maintain itself. That's right. That's what systems do. Yeah. I love mathematics. So I always think of it as like once you formulate a system, once you've created a formula, whatever you do, you have to continue to do it to balance it out. So that system remains. Right. So if you back up and you think of where the policing comes from, it comes from the laws that were created by our legislators. Our legislators created those laws to make sure it complies with the Constitution of the United States of America, right? So we have a history. Our history was slavery. Our history was Jim Crow. Our history was this idea of always maintaining a lower class of people to maintain the infrastructure of the higher class of people, right? Some people may disagree with me on that, but I will go back and forth with them forever. But that is the infrastructure that we've created. When you think about policing, you have to ask yourself the question, why is more funding given towards the punishment rather than the prevention, right? There's a reason for that. Why do we have private prisons? There's a reason for that. The infrastructure of our society is maintaining itself. So the idea of defunding and taking some of that money from the police, and this is sort of one of these important pieces of information. If you've ever read, I'm probably, you have, but I don't know if everyone's read um, 
Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow. Yeah. And one of the things she explains is how federal money is funded, right? And how it's given to certain places to particularly police, right? So when we say, oh, you know, we have a war on drugs, but you say you have a war on drugs, you're putting more money to police for them to arrest for drugs. But I went to Drexel University. That's in West Philadelphia or University City. But the police weren't policing all the drug use on the college campus. <laughs> and they were policing all the drug use behind the college campus, right? Where all the Black people live. But where all of the, the people who are of mixed race, particularly at Drexel, which is predominantly white, those kids were being arrested for all the drugs that they were using and right. selling on campus. So when you think about the defund police, often I tell people to make sure you understand what the system is already doing. And then identify the areas in which you can get more people to align with you and moving that money, right? And moving it to prevention rather than punishment. Does that answer you? I know it's a really long answer. No, that's good. That's great. So I just want to um, come back to something you said earlier. So you were saying beef, quote unquote, which is not really beef, but your concern, right? Your concern with the defund movement is that there are actually, are you saying there are three wings in it or two? And I want to just define what they are. So I think there are two big ones. Two big ones. Okay. So give us one more time. What are the two big ones? Because I think for people who don't get it, that's the confusion, right? Yeah. So there's, what are the two? So of the people talking about defund publicly, right? Mm -hmm. There's a a group of people who want to actually take all the money from police officers altogether because down to zero, down to zero. They want no police force because they think of it as a regime, but that is a smaller group of people, right? Then the other side of people are people who just want to reallocate the, the money, right? And so they want to shift it to more preventative things. Here's the thing. Sorry, and I'm going to interrupt you for clarity. And shifting it, reallocating means bringing it down substantially, but not down to zero. Correct. It's not that they're asking to get rid of all police officers, but here's an example. So you'll have a budget of millions of dollars, right? For the police department. But then they have these contracts where they have to update their cars every certain amount of time, right? So you have taxpayer dollars that's being filtered through the policing system to actually go to car companies. Because what they're doing is they're buying all new cars, or they're going to gun companies, because now they have to update all the guns for the police departments, right? And so if you get an 1800s gun, right, it still shoots today. So why every couple of years are the, yes, I just want to add something to that, right? And there's a huge amount that goes back to the USA government because we've actually sold in the past 10 to 15 years, we've sold our old military equipment to the police. So there's also like a little money circle going on there, right? So the government has paid the police departments to acquire weapons from the military who are basically themselves, which is just basically... a shifting around within the budget. I didn't even think about that's a circle, right? I didn't even think about the circle until this conversation, right? And that's why the police can show up with military tanks. Correct. 
we've done that in the past. That's very recent and it's pre 45. Right. Right. Um, like exactly. that actually happened during like Obama's presidency. Like yes, that's yes. exactly right. Okay. When I said that it was going back to gun companies, that was part of what I meant was, but I was skipping it in between. So I'm glad that you clarified that. Yeah. So we buy it from the U.S. government. The U.S. government bought it from a private industry, right? Because it's not the U.S. government who's actually building the guns. They have contracts with like Lockheed Martin and all of these different places. So what I tell people is like, if you break it down, what you have to think about is your tax dollars that you're asking these people to come into your community to help you and your mind, that's what you're thinking you're doing, is actually going to pay a private industry to become richer, right? That's and right. what I was going to with the guns is that there are rules that have been put in place by policymakers to require updates to updates to their equipment and updates to, right? So even if their cars are working, right, they have to get new ones. And I just don't know, I mean, why are police officers driving around in chargers? They're gas guzzlers, right? And it says, well, they need power to chase people down. But the rule is in the city of Philadelphia that they're not supposed to be chasing, right? Because it's danger to the larger community. So why would you be buying? I'm using cars as an example because it's a very simple thing for people to understand what defunding looks like, right? What people are equating with defunding is that all these police officers are going to be out of a job, right? But usually that's going to be closer to the last thing that they defund. There are so many things that are paid for that don't add value to the community. I'm curious, do, we actually, do we know how much of the police budget is actually salaries? That would be a great point you of activism. You can find that out. So when the city council does their budget every year, it is the longest thing ever. It's very difficult to filter through. But when they go in and do testimony, right? So usually each department will try to give testimony to explain why they need more money, even if they're doing nothing. That's my personal opinion. But <laughs> So oftentimes what they will present is their internal budget to city council in the drafting of the larger budget. I haven't been able to find it on the internet and maybe there, but typically how I've been able to see that is I'll go to the budget meetings and grab all of the, the testimonial papers and then I'll flip through it and look at it. Some of the stuff that you'll see is pretty appalling. Um, if citizens actually looked at where their money is going and start to question how is it being spent that way. Now, I would love to see even deeper when they say employees, I would love to see the breakdown of like, is there this big difference between this supervisor and the people who were doing the footwork, right? Yeah. But that's just, sorry. And so given that distinction of the two camps, mm -hmm. like, where do you stand? I stand in defund is only a first step and not a final solution in either camp. Right. Oh, I forgot to say this first camp, that's a smaller group of people. Some of them are actually a subset of the other one. That's why you were asking me, was it a third group? The reason I call it a subset is some people look at reallocation as the first step and to the final step of actually defunding altogether. Mm -hmm. right? So but there's I, like a third way that's kind of like a hybrid of both of them. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. So I have been encouraging people on the reallocation side 
But I still think that if you understand the system, it's not going to solve the underlying problem that we're seeking to resolve, right? Why not? Because you need to undo um, Supreme Court precedent and how the law is being, what, first of all, what the laws are, what we criminalize, what we have criminalized, and then how we have ruled the, how we read the words and the language of the Constitution. Personally, I think that we are not going to fix racism, poverty, homelessness, any of that until we rewrite the Constitution, right? I think that that is the only way. If people don't know what I mean by precedent, when you go to court, right, the judge will make a decision. They have what's known as a judicial opinion. So pause for a second. Yes. Because this is really important, right? And I can see you're like as passionate as me. Like, I'm like, I'm like, Carla, take a breath. Take a breath, Carla. All right. So you're a lawyer, right? And you're saying there is no way we can unwrite homelessness, poverty, and racism from our country without rewriting the Constitution. That's correct. That's very powerful. That's correct. So you're not like an activist who doesn't know the law, who's just like coming out with bold claims to get put it on their Twitter feed, right? You are actually a person who's been looking at the legal system for how long? I've actually been a lawyer for seven years, but I've been reading Supreme Court opinions for at least 15, 20 years. Brilliant. We can't wait to elect you to the Supreme Court. (laughs) Um, So you've been actually studying the law for that number of years and what you, the conclusion you've reached based on your understanding of the law is that we need to rewrite the constitution. Say more about that. The legal system in any society reflects the values of the society. We have to remember who wrote the constitution in its original form. And if you really read it and you think about it, the thing that is most protected throughout the constitution is this concept of property. Property is the strongest, everything that you can look through all the language, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, but all of that stuff was attached to property. And remember that black people at that time were considered property. So then why I had to talk about precedent is that all of the laws are flowing out of this. We can amend, we can change, but the fact that things have been interpreted a particular way already and we have this large body of law that is all speaking to each other and built off of each other you have to go back to the drawing board and considering you have the voices of african-american people that need to be a part of that conversation immigrants need to be a part of that conversation right the native americans should be a part of that conversation right so we can't get to liberty and justice for all until the voices and the value system of all are reflected in the actual rule of law that you're building everything off of it would be beautiful if we could overturn every bad law but it would it is harder to do that and then rewrite it, then it would be to go back and rewrite the Constitution. People don't want to rewrite the Constitution, but we have an infrastructure in place that makes it easier for us to call a constitutional convention than to say we are overturning every historical precedent as it relates to policing and criminal justice and corporate law and the SEC. It's too hard to do all of that when we can call a constitutional convention. What I love about what you're saying is that, you know, my first reaction, which I'm sure is going to be many of the listeners' reactions, like, oh, God, we're not doing that. Like, that's going to be a ton of work and we can't do it. And 
I'm an organizational development consultant. Organizations do it all the time. You rewrite your vision and you basically work on two tracks for a bit. You do the contingency planning on the short-term stuff. You operate in the old system for a bit, right? Then you do the process of visioning with your organization and you understand that once that vision is finalized, you're going to have to invest some time to realign everything there. Exactly. You're going to have to change everything according to the new vision. But exactly. you know that it's going to take some time to shift from an old vision to a new vision. And that's what organizational development consultants get hired to do is culture change. And it's generally because there's a new vision that's been declared. That's and exactly so right. it's that transition. And if we can do it for organizations, we can do it for a country. Yes, it is tremendously complex, right? It's not easy. But why can't we invest 10 or 20 years doing that? Instead of investing 10 and 20 years and bumping our heads against the wall and pretending that a system (laughs) that's not going to change is going to actually change. Let me just say this as the last thing. Everybody is like super on this anti, you know, not everyone, but people are talking about anti-racism, anti-racism, right? And this is not the first time we had this conversation. So this is the only thing I have to say to that. We had slavery. We abolished slavery. We got Jim Crow. We abolished Jim Crow. We got mass incarceration. If we don't fix the underlying root problem of racism, which in the United States of America is paired with our economic system, it's paired with our law. If we don't fix the root, 20 years, 50 years from now, our children are going to be fighting the same fight. So we have to do the hard work to deal with the root so that we can build a beautiful tree with fruit that we want to eat. I don't want to eat the fruit of the what was created or what was planted in the beginning. I don't want it. How do people get in touch with you, Carla? Um, so the easiest way to get in touch with me, honestly, is text message. Um, Cause I respond to that faster than an email. So my number is 215-629-6349. Um, if you call me, it'll probably go straight to voicemail. Cause I get so many of those robocalls now that I had to put filters on my phone. My email is kcruel at legalempowermentgroup.net. That's all one word. And I'm, I'm now working with another organization. I'm transitioning into becoming the policy director of Boycott Times. We'll be releasing soon. And so once that comes out, that'll be a great way to reach me. Wonderful. Carla, thank you for being with us this morning and shaking up the foundation and like inspiring (laughs) us to think about rewriting the Constitution. I'm loving this conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.